From Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Uh, good morning. Bring greetings from uh, New York City. Uh, I went to Gordon Conwell. Oh, we got a little. Uh, I'm feeling very Darth Vaderish up here. Sorry. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I went to Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, which is just on the North Shore of Boston. And so, whenever we come back here, uh, it's very fond memories. Uh, but I've been a pastor in New York City now for about 16 years, and uh, was part of a church when I was here in Boston that came out of Christ the King, so in many respects this feels like a homecoming, so thank you for, so much for having me uh, and welcoming me here. A story that I'd like to share as I get started, especially with a new congregation, is when we're in New York City, one of the things that we like to do when I get a few weeks off from my own congregation is to visit other churches of various traditions and different ethnic backgrounds, and there was one Sunday we were visiting a church. Uh, pastor by a good friend of mine, <clears throat> and we went through the service, and uh, the sermon was great, it was Bible-based, it was engaging, it was a powerful sermon. And at the very end of the service, I have four kids, and my third child, who's a son, who happened to be probably eight or nine at the time, literally right after that service ended, he turns to me with all the earnestness of an eight-year-old and says to me, Dad, how come you don't preach like that? And so, you know, being the gracious and open-minded and, you know, compassionate father that I am, I said, well, Micah, uh, well, wh like, what do you mean by that? Can you t say more? And he was like, you know, like interesting and funny. <laughs> and so this morning, I can't promise to be, I will promise to be neither interesting nor funny, uh, but I hope that I could faithfully bring the word of God to you. With my job at Redeemer City to City, one of the things that I get to do is train church planters in cities across uh, the U.S. mostly, but also a little bit across the world. And one of the things that I get to do when I'm doing some of those trainings is I get to speak at different churches. And as I've thought about speaking at churches, I've asked myself, what do I think is one of the most urgent messages that Church of Jesus Christ needs to hear today? And there's obviously a lot going on in the news. If you read the headlines, there seems to be plenty happening in the church in America today that might cause consternation, discouragement. And in fact, some of you might be here and you maybe don't use the word deconstructing your faith, or maybe you do. Or maybe you're here and you're here for the very first time, you're un unsure about what it means to walk into a church that believes some of the historic doctrines of the Christian faith. And for all those reasons, I've often asked myself, what is the message that if I'm going to be traveling to speak that I want to give to the church of Jesus? And as I thought and prayed about that, the message that I find myself coming back to time and again is simply the call to Christians to come back to Jesus. 
uh, to cut through oftentimes what is, feels like noise and static, what oftentimes feels like culture wars, to cut through all that and find ourselves getting back to Jesus. A fa- very famous old rabbinic blessing that I find myself coming back to time and time again, and the blessing goes something like this. It's very simply, it says, may you ever be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And I love the imagery of that because it evokes the image of a disciple uh, tagging along so closely, wanting to be so near to the rabbi, that no matter where the rabbi goes, that the dust kicked up by the sandals of the rabbi covers the disciple. The disciple goes where the rabbi goes, does what the rabbi does, sees and says what the rabbi sees and says, and longs to be so near to the rabbi that we find ourselves covered in his dust. What would it look like for the church in America today, for Christians in America today, to get back to Jesus, to ask ourselves when when the people of, uh, who don't believe encounter me, do they sense the dust of our rabbi, the rabbi who walked amongst the poor, the rabbi who came to the vulnerable, who showed mercy to those who needed it, the rabbi who fed the hungry? When they draw near to me, do they smell the aroma of Jesus Christ? What would it look like for Christians, rather than being known in our day for whatever it is that a Christian might be known for, to be known like this, to get back to Jesus? And one of the ways that I like to do that is to come back, especially to the Sermon on the Mount, and the text that was read to you today comes from that sermon, and it's a section where Jesus calls every one of his followers, his disciples, to be salt and light. So I want to consider this call of our rabbi. If you're here today and you call yourself a Christian, the call of your rabbi, and even more than just your rabbi, isn't he? Your Lord, your Savior, your King. I want to invite you to ask yourself, open up your heart. What is the Spirit asking you to do with regards to being salt and light this morning? So as we look at this text, uh, I want to consider three things. First, I want to look at what the text assumes Secondly, what the text means, and then thirdly, what it requires for us to live it out. Okay, so first, let's look at what it assumes, because if you grew up in the church, this text might be a very famous one, and Jesus assumes something that is crucial, but if you're a Christian, it can so often be taken for granted that we forget to pay attention to what is being assumed here. And I want us this morning to give attention to what oftentimes is assumed in the teaching of this passage. And the assumption here is very simple. The assumption that Jesus is making is those who are followers of Christ will be different from the people of the world. That in order for salt to serve its purpose, it must be different from that which it's being sent into. In order for light to light, be a city on a hill, in order to light to light up the darkness, it must be different from the darkness into which it is sent. John Stott, the great Anglican preacher, wrote this in one of his commentaries. He says, Jesus' teaching here is built on the assumption that Christians are different. And it issues a call to Christians to be different. He says, probably the greatest tragedy of the church throughout its long and checkered history 
has been its constant tendency to conform to the prevailing culture instead of developing a Christian counterculture. And in fact, if you look in this text, there really is only one warning that Jesus, one danger that Jesus is pointing out to his followers here. We find it in verse 13 where he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That the one danger, the greatest danger, the one warning is if salt loses its saltiness, if salt in the process of going out loses its distinctiveness, it's no longer of use. That if a lamp, the city on a hill, is lit, but because of fear of being disruptive to the darkness, chooses instead to be covered up and is snuffed out, this is the greatest danger, Jesus says, that faces his disciples. It's the danger, the temptation to avoid, deny, downplay our differences, to be like others, desire to fit in ultimately for Jesus is an abdication of the calling that salt and light can't benefit its environment without being different. One of the things that we do with our kids, I mentioned we have four children, they go, they're now almost 18, which is bonkers, all the way down to nine. And one of the things that we've done uh, for as long as we can remember is something that we call praying feet. And one of the things that we do is everyone gets up in the morning, we're all running around, and it's a hectic time, we're trying to get out to school and that sort of thing. But before the first person leaves out the door, we gather everybody around in a circle, and we put our feet into a circle. And essentially what I do in that moment is I pray a very quick prayer that says something like, Lord, help us to be joyfully different from the world. Help us to keep in step with your spirit and not in step with the spirit of the world. Wherever you take us, Wherever you guide our feet, help us be prepared to shine the light of Jesus. For me, the controlling phrase in that prayer is joyfully different. Not angrily different, not fearfully different, not begrudgingly different. Help us to be joyfully different from those around us. This is what is assumed. Christian How different is your life from your peers around you? The provocative way I like to ask this question, which I think sometimes maybe presses a little bit too hard, but I'm going to ask it this way anyways and just let the Spirit of God do what he's going to do. But if there was an investigation to see whether you were a follower of Jesus, would there be enough evidence in your life to indict? And I'm not talking about old Christian t-shirts or worship albums. I'm not talking about Christian posters. If there, was an, if, there was a, if there was an investigation searching out the followers of Jesus, is there enough difference in your life to indict you? Joyfully different from the world. One of my favorite images of this <clears throat> comes from a great sermon by uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., where he talks about what the world needs most. And he was preaching here probably back in the 1950s, maybe the early 1960s. And he says, What the world needs most is what he calls a group of transformed nonconformists. 
Uh, people who are creatively maladjusted to the world around. And here's what Dr. King writes. This is in a sermon on Romans chapter 12. Uh, be, tran- uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says this, Our world needs a dedicated circle of transformed nonconformists. Our planet teeters on the brink of annihilation. Dangerous passions of pride, hatred, and selfishness are enthroned in our lives. And men do reverence before the false gods of nationalism and materialism. The saving of our world from pending doom will come not through the complacent adjustment of the conforming majority, but through the creative maladjustment of a non-conforming minority. Did you catch that? Will come not through the complacent adjustment of the conforming majority, but through the creative maladjustment of a non-conforming minority. And then he says this, he says, we must make a choice Will we continue to march to the drumbeat of conformity and respectability, or will we, listening to the beat of a more distant drum, move to its echoing sounds? Will we, risking criticism and abuse, march to the soul-saving music of eternity? And I want us to, our imaginations, to cling on to that image of the beat of a more distant drum the rhythm, the cadence of another kingdom. That when Jesus calls us to be different so that we can be salt and light, it's not being different for the sake of being different because there's nothing more obnoxious than someone who's different for the sake of being different. When Jesus calls us to be different, it's because he's calling us to a higher conformity to the drumbeat, the cadence, the rhythm, so that our lives, our feet, are set to dancing by the, to the rhythm of the beat of the kingdom of God. That we're so in tune to a music of transcendent joy and wonder and goodness and beauty that our lives are set to dancing in the streets. Frederick Nietzsche, of all people, is attributed to saying this. He says, those who dance are judged to be mad by those who can't hear the music. Christian, is your heart so tuned in to the music of the kingdom of God that your life is set to dancing? And that those who cannot hear the music of this more beautiful kingdom might judge you mad because of your joy. Because we're dialed in to the rhythm of a more distant drum, the soul-saving music of eternity. In order for our lives to be set to dancing like this, part of what it means is this. It means, Christian, you need to know the Word of God so deeply. It needs to be so deep in your bones that no matter what tune is playing across the airwaves of the world, it's the drumbeat and the cadence of the kingdom that's so deep in your bones that it sets you dancing. Do you know the Word of God like that? Do you know that so no matter what siren song might be playing, this is the music that captures the rhythm of your soul 
in your life? Do you know the Word of God like that? I wonder if we do. Uh, So I'm Korean-American, and part of what it means to be Korean-American, apart from having this massive cultural moment between like movies and TV shows and pop music, like Koreans, I feel like we're kind of taking over the world. So aside from having this cultural moment, one of the things that Koreans are known for, and this is true of us, so I'm kind of confirming stereotypes here, but it's okay because it's true of me. Our family loves karaoke. And so we look for excuses to go karaoke, and we go karaoke as a family. And the thing about Korean karaoke, if you've never done this, is that you actually get to rent your own room, so you're not singing in front of strangers, which I would never do, because I'm mediocre at best when it comes to singing. But with like your group of friends or family, that's what you get. So we go, we get a room, and we do karaoke, and it's a blast. One of the things that my kids always make fun of me for is they always say, Dad, you pick these songs... And you really think you know these songs. And you pick these songs, and the song comes on, comes on, and everyone goes, like, whose song is this? Who picked this? And then you're like, oh, this is totally my jam. Like, this, I'm, this is my song. I'm going to crush it. And then you go up there. You don't know any of the words. You, like, stumble through it, and you finally get to the chorus, and you can say, like, three lines. And the rest of the time, it's like, uh, okay, uh, I kind of know this. The most recent one... <laughs> Uh, time that we went uh, to karaoke, I had, of course, the same moment. I mean, it's like predictable. It's like a script. I had the same moment, but this time I was sure. I was like, guys, I picked this song, and this is totally my jam. I'm going to crush it. It's not like all the other times. I totally know the song. Guys, you know what song I picked for me to sing at karaoke because I thought I knew every word and I could crush it? It was a song, Despacito. <laughs> if you don't know that song... That whole song is in Spanish. I speak no Spanish. And that song came on and I'm like, oh, this is in Spanish. I've done it again, yet again. And then, of course, just as a little bit of a disclaimer, my daughter, was, you know, she was like 17 at the time, she's like, Dad, don't go home and Google the lyrics of Desposito. So I went home and Googled the lyrics of Desposito. No dad should ever be singing Desposito with his kids. It is not an appropriate song. The point of all that is this. Friends, do you know the word of God so well that you would crush it at karaoke? My guess is that you're a lot like me. You really think you know it. But when it comes time to actually have to set your life to the rhythms of the word of God, you realize I don't know this as well as I thought. It's far easier for me to get pulled into the rhythms and the cadences of this world, the siren song of this world. It's not so deep in my bones that no matter what tune is playing over the airwaves, it's the Word of God that sets my life dancing. Friends, if we're going to be salt and light, we're going to have to learn how to be joyfully different from the world around us? Do you know God's word? Is the volume high enough on the word of God? Is the drumbeat deep enough that is setting your life to dancing? So that's first what it assumes. Secondly, and we'll move a little more quickly here. Let's look at what it means. So what does it mean to be salt? And what does it mean to be light? 
Now, salt in ancient times had, multi, had uh, multiple different kinds of purposes and uses in Jesus' time. And I think when Jesus uses this metaphor of salt, he's trying to latch on to all these various uses to give his original audience a sense of what it means to be a Christian in a culture that is decidedly not determined by the Christian faith. And so what, what, are, what are these meanings? What were the other uses? Well, in ancient times... <clears throat> Uh, the, the primary use of salt was uh, to serve as a preservative. So right now we have modern-day re- re- refrigeration. I always tell people my favorite modern-day amenities are flushing toilets and refrigeration, and maybe air conditioning might be number three, right? But before the times of um, uh, refrigeration, the primary use of salt was to serve as a preservative. And so what Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, what Jesus is saying is he's saying to follow Jesus means that you will work against social decay everywhere you come across it. So all the ways that a culture can go bad, and if by go bad, if you're maybe a little bit more right-leaning, you think of all the immorality and the immoral ways a culture can go bad, or if you may be a little bit more left-leaning in all the unjust ways that a culture can go bad, Jesus says, I think, all that in mind, all the ways that a culture can go bad He's saying to be salt of the earth, the Christian enters into those places of social decay to serve as a preservative. Uh, salt in Jesus' time also served as an antiseptic. It served and it had healing properties. And so he's saying not only in places of social decay, but also where your neighbors feel wounded and harmed and bruised. For Christians to enter into those places as a force of healing and restoration. Salt in Jesus' time was also used thirdly as, like just like today in our time, as a form of seasoning. But here's what's interesting about salt for me. Uh, so I love all kinds of hot sauces. Our family has an entire drawer that's about 70% different hot sauces. My friends for Christmas, bought me this case of, I think it was probably 40 different hot sauces from across the world. So I love hot sauces, and I love hot sauces of all kinds. So whether it's Cholula or Tapatia or Sriracha or Mala or Laoganma or Gochujang, whatever the hot sauce is, any cultures I will take and I will absolutely love it. So this is no shade against hot sauce. But the difference between hot sauce and salt is what? What does hot sauce do? Hot sauce covers over a multitude of culinary sins, doesn't it? So you can get something, it could just be really poorly cooked, but you have the right hot sauce and it covers over those culinary sins. But what does salt do? Salt, when it's used right, it doesn't cover over the flavors that are in the food that you're given. Salt draws out and enhances the flavor that's already inherent in the food that you're eating. And I think part of what that means is that when Jesus says Christians are to be the salt of the earth, he's saying yes to work, speak out against and work against social decay. Be that preservative. But I think he's saying something more. I think he's saying Christians are also called to enter in and enhance and draw out the beauty and the goodness that we see in culture. That like salt, rather than covering over with a different flavor, rather than trying to overpower the flavors that are there, but salt to enter in, to kind of 
lose itself in the midst, in the midst that draw out all the goodness, enhance the goodness that's already present there. How does this apply to your workplace culture? How might this apply in your neighborhood to be salt and light in those places? To be working against social decay, to be enhancing social good. To be salt of the world. Now, the metaphor of light is maybe a little bit easier for us to understand because throughout the Bible, light almost always is a metaphor for truth. And so light, obviously, the first thing it does is that it illuminates. It sheds light into the darkness. It brings a truth that has explanatory power that makes sense of everything else. So it means bringing the truth of gospel into every area of life. But light also is a second property that I think oftentimes we can forget. Light illuminates, but light also attracts. There's a warmth that is an inherent quality to light as well. And to follow Jesus means to bring the truth of the gospel in all of life, but with a warmth, with a joy, with a humility, with a hopefulness that draws people who are out maybe in the cold and the darkness towards the light that welcomes them home. When I was growing up, we didn't uh, go on vacations very often, so summer vacation was maybe a once, in a f- once every five years sort of a thing. The rest of the time, we were just biking in the streets and you know, kind of left to ourselves. Classic Gen X parenting. Just disappear, come back for dinner, don't hurt yourself. Uh, but the times that we did go on vacation, those summers felt like we were kings. I mean, we felt like royalty. So we thought, man, we've totally made it. Like, this is amazing. So every time we go on vacation, everything on vacation to me was like, man, this is a life. We are living the dream. And so because of that, uh, one of the, 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 the hotel that we would stay in every time we went on summer vacation became synonymous for me with the life of luxury. Do you know what that hotel chain was? It was Motel 6. So every time we went to Motel 6, I was like, we are kings. We are living the American dream. But there was an ad campaign from Motel 6 years ago. Probably no one remembers it. The only reason I remember it was because it already had this soft spot in my heart, and I love Motel 6. But there was an ad campaign from Motel 6 many, many years ago where the, the tagline was something like Motel 6. Do you remember this? We'll leave the light on for you. And I'm like, they're leaving the light on for me. Like, that's for me. But what I love about that image is what does that mean to leave the light? That means we're going to light your path back home. And there's going to be someone waiting to welcome you when you enter into the doors. Truth illuminates the way back to our life with God. The only way. But that there's a warmth and a welcome being offered to be the light of the world, to be the Motel 6 of the world, to light your way home. Our friends, our neighbors, maybe for you who are here and you're exploring and you're not sure what you think about Jesus yet, a light to show you your steps back home. And to know there's someone waiting to embrace you when you walk into the doors. Now, all of this, by the way, must have sounded absurd to the original audience that Jesus was speaking to. Because Jesus, at this point, is not speaking to the cultural elites. They're not speaking to the power brokers of his society, the influencers. 
Uh, At this point, Jesus is likely speaking to a group of marginal, inconsequential people. It's the very beginning of a small movement of marginal people on the far outskirts of the Roman Empire, a land occupied by the greatest military force that the world had ever seen. But that's the beauty of what Jesus is teaching here. He's telling ordinary people, the people who oftentimes feel forgotten, overlooked, unseen, incapable. He's telling ordinary people, the working poor, he's telling ordinary people that yes, you are the salt and light of the world. In the economy of the kingdom of God, it's not the impressive and the powerful and the influential, but it's the overlooked and the forgotten and the pushed aside. Yes, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Are you here today and you don't feel like you're particularly influential, powerful? You don't feel like you're in the centers of culture or part of this elite? It's possible that Jesus is speaking to you to tell you you are the light of the world, the salt of the earth. Come to me. Turn away from all those other things. Come to me. It's a call given to every Christian, no matter how ordinary or inadequate you might feel. And so you in your corner of the city, on your block, in your building, in your office, on the basketball court, wherever it is that you live your life, Jesus calling you, yes, you, in all of your ordinariness. I love the kingdom of God moves forward through the ordinary obedience of the forgotten and the unseen. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. But third and finally, we look first at what it assumes that we're going to be joyfully different. Secondly, what it means to be salt and light. Third and finally, what does it require? Because it is actually a difficult calling to be salt and light, isn't it? Because when you think about to be salt and light, what it's asking of the Christian is to, be, is to go out into the world and to expend yourself into, in the world so that you might provide saltiness. It's asking the light to leave a place of safety, as it were, and to go out into darkness and to pierce through that darkness and to illuminate It's actually an incredibly high calling that it's far easier for the Christian to say it's much safer for me to stay inside my shaker, underneath my bowl. This way, Christians, we can at least huddle together and we can protect each other. We can make sure that the salt and our saltiness remains pure, that there's no meat juice or vegetable juice that gets into my little container of salt. We're going to keep our salt clean is if we could just stay on the side of the oven and not actually get thrown into the pan. But Jesus asks the Christian to go out to diffuse themselves into the darkness, to go out in order to get in, to enter in, to place ourselves in the middle of darkness and decay to place ourselves, to go right to the places of suffering and hurt, ready to expend ourselves completely to bring about good. So how do we do that? How could we possibly, where do we find the resources 
to obey this calling to be salt and light without falling into temptations, without losing our saltiness, without, without losing our distinctiveness, without losing our identity. How do we do this? Well, an answer that came to me as I was listening to a talk by the criminal justice lawyer Brian Stevenson, and he was sharing a little bit about his work with the Equal Justice Initiative. And he refers back to when he was a child and he would go to his grandmother's house. And at his grandmother's house, you know, he was one of many siblings and cousins and that sort of thing, so he always kind of felt lost in the midst of the shovel. But whenever he'd go to his grandmother's house, his grandmother would sit across the room and just stare at him with a big smile on her face and would continue to stare. And at some point she'd say, Brian, come over here. And Brian would come over and she would say, Brian, I want you to know you can do anything you set your mind to. So yes, grandmother. And at some point, the grandmother would give Brian this big bear hug, the kind of hug that you feel like you might die from, and would hug and say, Brian, I love you, and would let him go. You know, maybe half an hour later, Brian Stevens would come back again, and her grandmother would say, Brian, come over here. Give her a big hug. Half an hour later, she'd say, Brian, can you still feel me hugging you? And if you would say, no, grandmother, I can't, and she'd say, well, get over here. Big hug, the kind that could maybe kill you. And sends her. And over time, he, of course, learned to realize, when his grandma says, Brian, can you still feel me hugging you? He knows, yes, grandma. I can still feel the hug. I'm good. I feel it everywhere I go. I can't get away from the hug. I feel it everywhere. Brian Stevenson talks about how that experience, though, shaped his fundamental identity. That that embrace of his grandmother, this embrace of a grandmother who loved him, who saw who he could be, a grace, embrace of a grandmother that followed him wherever he went, formed a sense of who he was. And it also taught him that in order to do his work as a criminal justice lawyer, he had to get proximate to the people that he was defending and representing. And so it led him into an entire approach around criminal justice, and especially those facing uh, facing the death penalty, to draw near to them, to get proximate. Maybe, I don't know if he's physically embracing them with a grandmother hug, but something along those lines. That you can't do that work without getting proximate. But he said it was that embrace, the embrace that followed him wherever he went, that formed his identity and then sent him in into a world that was filled with darkness. Friends, the only way that you or I can ever fulfill the calling to be salt and light is if you know what it's like for the holy God, almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, to embrace you precisely in the place of your darkness and decay. For the God of the universe to come and offer you his love precisely in the place of your wounds and your bruises and your pain. Unless you know what it's like to receive the embrace of the Father, an embrace that you don't deserve, that you could never earn, and therefore if you have it in Jesus, you could never lose. Unless you know what it's like to feel the embrace of the Father, an embrace that follows you wherever you go. Unless you find your identity shaped by that embrace, you can't get proximate. You will always be afraid. You would rather stay safe. Friends, do you know the embrace that's offered to you in Jesus Christ? 
Do you know the one who sees all the darkness and decay, all the rebellion and sin, all the rejection, all the selfishness, who's seen it all and yet precisely in that place of your darkness, it says, I'll embrace you even at terrible cost to myself. Do you know that love? Because if you've tasted the love of Jesus in that way, if you've seen Jesus, the one who is the only true salt of the earth, if you realize that he was trampled underfoot for you, then you'd be able to walk in his ways. If you realize that on the cross, Jesus, the one true light of the world, was being snuffed out, the light was disappearing from his eyes as he breathed his last if you realize he did that for you, of course you could be the light of the world. So friends, as we close here, as we come to the table, would you come and receive the embrace of the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit? Come to this table when you arrive with your wound, with your darkness, with your decay and receive the embrace of the Father right there so that you can leave this place and be salt and light in Cambridge and Boston so the world might know that there is a love being offered to them if they would just be open to receive it. Friends, let's do that together. Let's pray. Lord, you've made us to be different. Fill us with such joy in the gospel that we need not be angrily different, fearfully different, but we can be joyfully different. And Lord, help us right now. I don't know where we need to sense your embrace in a new way, where we need to sense our forgiveness in Jesus in a new way. But right now, by your Spirit, help us to turn away, to repent of the ways in which the world has enchanted us again. And precisely in the place of our wounds and of our decay and our darkness, to experience your embrace here and now. So send us out, Lord, as you feed us, not only with your word, but with your body and your blood. Send us out now to be salt and light, wherever you might take us this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.